You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Hopefully you will um, as, I, as I talk. So like many parts of the world today, as we've been talking about, the United States is, fa- is facing a crisis in its democracy that threatens to destroy and already has destroyed particular human lives uh, by racial violence. Um, but is also threatening to destroy any commitment to a larger, larger foundational principle uh, about the security of citizens' persons and their basic human and political rights. Um, uh, so the main theme of what I want to talk about today and one that runs through the three presentations has to do with uh, the use of uh, violence uh, of, of viol- uh, the use of violence, including sexual violence, in campaigns of political terror, um, which is to say the way violence is used as a tool uh, of political... T- uh, I'm sorry, the way in which violent actors uh, use violence to overthrow democratically elected governments. So that's the first theme of my presentation. And the second theme is uh, what it takes to meet and block or overturn uh, meet the challenge of armed reactionary groups. So it's, it's two parts, and they're both uh, in this one particular historical case. Now, um, even for those of us familiar with the United States, um, this moment we're in right now frighteningly recapitulates a key foundational moment in the crisis of democracy uh, in the United States, and that was the violent suppression of African Americans' uh, civil and political rights by white supremacist groups These are the groups that would come together to be known as the KKK, the Ku Klux Klan, during the period right after the Civil War. Um, And it's a period known as Reconstruction. So I'm going to put up a basic timeline just um, uh, for these events in case it's easier than taking notes. Um, Now, in terms of the United States, the single most uh, critical historical element has to do not with the American Civil War itself, but with its aftermath. And that war, uh, and it has to do really with the legacy of slavery uh, and, uh, and its associated ra- racial violence against African Americans, which uh, remains the largest, uh, the largest, I think, unresolved issue in American political life to this day. And if you know anything about the United States in the current moment, you can see that. Um, <clears throat> so in the United States, uh, I'm sorry, um, So this is the issue. So that history, uh, I think, has to be rethought through the lens of collective cultural trauma. And this is a this 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 episode of racial violence, epidemic of racial violence after the Civil War, has to be rethought through the prism of uh, of cultural trauma. And that is being done only very recently by numbers of historians and legal um, justice activists. Uh, acting in and writing about the black community. And you can see that, for example, one uh, excellent example is Brian Stevenson, who I believe Eileen puts, or maybe Marianne, puts some of his writings in the, um, on our reading list. But from my perspective, uh, and also um, one part of my research project is in, in, in this approach to violence and, and cultural trauma, is to bring a feminist perspective uh, to the analysis of these events one that is attuned to the connection between allegedly private or domestic matters of the family and the household, women, gender, and sexuality, the connection between that and public political life. So 
unlike other people, when I talk about po uh, political violence and racial violence, I want to also focus on the part of that specifically that is sexual violence. Now, um, this involves a reckoning, I think. This is not in the literature as of yet, but I think it involves a reckoning with the sexual violence of slavery, which is the prehistory of all of what I'm going to talk about today. And I think there's no way of understanding what happened after the Civil War if you do not understand the legacy of sexual violence under slavery and the way, in my opinion, it led, laid a very deep explosive charge under every negotiation over the terms of freedom in the United States uh, starting in Reconstruction. And I think this is the missing piece of people's understanding of the Ku Klux Klan. So it's violence, but it's also quite specifically includes sexual violence. So let me just talk for one, uh, hopefully for a couple of minutes, about the, about the historical context. And obviously, this is what we usually do, so this is the simplified brief version. Okay, so the relevant background is the American Civil War, 1861-65, which was fought explicitly over the legitimacy of slavery. And by 1865, the Confederacy had been decisively defeated, uh, and emancipation codified in the Constitution by the 13th Amendment. Um, uh, the war itself propelled that process of emancipation and it was Union victory that allowed them to enforce it on the Confederacy and on white slaveholders as a consequence of defeat. So it's a kind of indemnity of a sort. Now it's important to remember that there were four million African Americans enslaved in the United States when that war started and unlike other parts of the world they were emancipated in one go. Uncompensated emancipation slaveholders were wiped out uh, it, it was two, an estimated $4 billion, two-thirds of the capital wealth of the southern states, $10 trillion in today's household wealth. That's one estimate. So this is a massive, massive social transformation. Um, <clears throat> now, this was made permanent in the 13th Amendment, passed at the very end of, eight, passed in 1865, just as the war ended, and then it had to be implemented and imposed on these defeated southern states in the aftermath of the war. And that propelled, so the first thing that came up was that southern states defeated had to, uh, uh, had to accept and implement it, which they did not do. So from the, from the, 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 from the get-go, there was massive public resistance to the implementation of even the basic premise of emancipation. And that in turn propelled a radical, even revolutionary set of developments in Congress, which in reaction to this, uh, moved in ever more radical directions, and the most radical outcome of all was that by 1867, they had uh, uh, voted to give African-American men the right to vote in the United States. Now, this is the only post-emancipation society in the Western Hemisphere where this happened. It radically transformed, emancipation transformed society. This transformed political life and political culture. Within two years of the end of the war, you had southern states with black electoral majorities, okay? And this is ex-slaveholders. Um, now, not just a black, uh, off, uh, a, a black majority electorate in some of these states, you had black office holders. Uh, black men in the Senate, black men in state legislatures, black men on the courts. It was truly a radical revolutionary development and it happened very fast and it happened under the conditions of military occupation. So you can see the complications right off the bat. Um, now, um, uh, it was in this context, in the middle of this process, between 1865 and 1877, this period called Reconstruction, 
um, that uh, the United States also re revised its constitution and it passed the 14th Amendment giving equal, uh, first of all, establishing birthright citizenship, so modern citizenship, which Brooks was talking about the other day. You can see the resonances to contemporary developments. This, this was the moment at which this was established. Uh, uh, but it also established, the 14th Amendment also established equal protection under the law. The question was, how could you deliver that? And that, of course, is the enduring issue in American democracy, one of maybe the key issue in American democracy. To enforce these laws, this Congress put the South back under military occupation. So some of these states had escaped military occupation briefly when they didn't work to implement these amendments. Uh, they were put back under military occupation, and that's when the shit really hit the fan. Like, that's when the big backlash came. After the 14th Amendment, the 15th Amendment guaranteed the right to vote to African-American men, but it had already been Im implemented by previous, uh, uh, previous acts. Um, so, the, in other words, it is at this moment exactly that the United States adopts the very expansive and progressive notion of inclusive citizenship that is still being contested in the United States and radically expanded it across racial lines in a way that had never been done before and backed it up with constitutional amendments which put the federal government in the obligation of enforcing it. This was a massive war on the ground, basically. It is not, it's easy to write, not easy, but you can write a constitutional amendment, it's another matter to enforce it. <clears throat> now, but as I said, by far the most radical development was the extension of the vote to African-American men and it transformed democracy, especially within the southern states and that is the subject of this very famous and incredible book by W.E.B. Du Bois, Black Reconstruction, which the full title of which that he wanted the title to be The Black Reconstruction of Democracy in America. And that captures what's going on here. And I, I, don't, I don't have time to go into it, but he, of course, thought that this was a moment of incredible possibility, not just for the United States, but for workers worldwide and for racial democracy and workers' democracy and ultimately, he regarded it as defeated. Um, let's see. Oh my goodness, is that really true? That's been 15 minutes already? Oh, I used five minutes. Okay, sorry, I had a panic attack there. Um, so let's see. Uh, so this transformed the electorate and the society, and it involved the implementation of a new reality. And we don't have time to talk about it today, but in a, on a brighter note, the kinds of democracies that the kind of state constitutions that these new office holders and new electorate enacted in these southern states were incredibly progressive. It involved a very different view of the role of government, of who they served, and it really was an incredibly interesting uh, experiment in public policy uh, by uh, the people who undertook it. It's a vision of democracy that came from poor people, rural ex-workers, ex rural workers, ex-slaves, people of African descent in the world. And there was this 15, 20 year period where they wrote these constitutions, they wrote new public policies, they abolished capital punishment, they did all kinds of things. Um, but as you can see, this was, uh, this was done uh, with a new black electorate, some black office holders, new state constitutions written by Republican governments in white democratic states, and the backlash was unbelievable. So now I want to turn to that because that's the context in which the Klan comes in. Uh, it's always a backlash to an opening of democracy, to a progressive initiative, and to the, uh, the, to the carrying and embodiment of those rights by people on the other side of the color line. So that's what happened in 1860, 
1867 in the United States, 1867 to 70. Now, the backlash, as I said, was brutal. From the moment uh, these governments, uh, these state governments were put in place, they faced violent challenges to their political legitimacy. This is not arguing around the corners. This is directly attacking the, the, the political legitimacy of African-American voters, office holders, and, uh, and governments. Southern whites regarded these governments as, as wholly illegitimate uh, because they were imposed by military force, which is fair enough, and because they empowered black people to rule over and make laws for white people. And there was no hemming around, hemming and hawing around it. So South Carolina delegation wrote to Congress, quote, the white people of our state will never submit to Negro rule. So that's it in a nutshell. They are not fighting over small things. They are fighting over very huge things, and the lines are very clearly drawn. Uh, Southern, uh, Southern uh, I'm sorry, the, one of the earliest historians of the first Klan, this 19th century Klan, uh, says, quote, conservative opposition to Reconstruction was about as deeply felt as political opposition ever gets. Now, we have a lot of uh, examples we could introduce in this room to measure that, but this is definitely in contention. I'm from Belfast. There are people here from the Balk from Yugos former Yugoslavia. We all have a lot of very urgent comparisons that we can make, but I think this is very true. It's, it was um, a, a deeply felt political opposition to the fundamental principle that white people had political, I'm sorry, that black people could have political rights. Um, <clears throat> The, these whites in the South were determined to reverse Reconstruction and to impose a new form of white supremacy to replace slavery. That's it in a nutshell. They knew they couldn't reconstitute slavery itself, but they went about trying to find every possible way to keep a hold of that labor force, to deprive them of rights, to hold all the levers of government and power in their own hands. And it was a massive, broad campaign. Um, now, at first, they tried to dislodge these governments by electoral means. And they failed. They failed repeatedly. So they did that first. And then they turned to other means. And the most important tactic was the simplest one, sheer, brutal, murderous violence. So the first lesson of Reconstruction is about the use and, unfortunately, the success of violence to under undermine, in fact, really overthrow uh, legitimately elected governments. And that is precisely what happened. And I personally don't underestimate the possibility or likelihood of this in the contemporary moment. It unleashed a campaign of murderous violence that was designed to, uh, to, to terrify these people into not exercising their constitutional rights. Um, it was perpetrated by white citizens, paramilitary organizations, locally organized by democratic clubs, so their parties were reversed in their uh, agendas in those days. Um, by 1870, they were organized and systematic under a range of democratic organizations. So in the early years, you would see them referred to as white rifle clubs, which is terrifying, night riders, white league, and eventually they all lost their individual identity and all got called the Ku Klux Klan. And they would announce to the people that they were murdering and torturing, you're going to get Ku Kluxed. So they were using the title quickly. Um, now, the 20th century Klan is the one we know the most about. So that's what the Klan looked like in the 20th century. That's what most of the scholarship about is about. I'm talking about the 19th century Klan. This is what they looked like 
This is uh, ex-Confederate military men primarily. Um, uh, it formed in 1866 by a small group of Confederate veterans. They soon had a big network and they unleashed a campaign of violence that peaked in 1870 to 1871. They murdered, this is the red dots, uh, can't read this from here. Uh, so the red dots are where the uh, violence, the murderous violence happened, the Klan attacks. The blue dots are congressional hearings a year later about that violence. Um, they murdered an estimated 20,000 people in this short period of time, 1870 to 71, and they maimed, wounded, and tortured and terrorized a vastly larger number. They terrorized the whole black community in the South, and that's how political terror works. It's not about just punishing individuals, but spreading terror in the whole community. They did target political leaders and ordinary voters. They beat them to death, near to death. They burned their homes. They castrated them, all to threaten them from voting Republican. It was about political control and labor control and other critical aspects of white democracy. But the last thing I want to mention and this is where my own research comes in and work that I'm doing with Jane and Rosemary, is that Klan violence has been seen as almost exclusively political in its motivations, but that does not explain why there is sexual violence against women as one of the key tactics of these terror campaigns. They are not voters. The 14th and 15th Amendments did not extend, the 15th Amendment did not extend the right to vote to them, and yet they are also targeted. So there's a great deal of violence against women, uh, most of it's sexually motivated, and I think it is a reminder to all of us that sexual regulation is the core of racial regimes of white supremacy, then and now, and it involves policing and enforcing racial boundaries through sexual uh, uh, violence. Um, some of that sexual violence to black was about black women who, refu who refused to sleep with white men who had formerly been able to coerce that sex and to do so with impunity. Rape was not a crime under slavery. Two years later, they could be brought up on charges for those things. They didn't think that that was right. Um, so in other words, they're using violence to preserve sexual access and show that they could coerce it with impunity. Clan violence was a co confrontation with the sexual legacy of slavery, and I can talk more about that uh, uh, if, in the Q&A if you're interested. Now, African Americans resisted all of this. They were simply outgunned and outmatched. They were left to defend themselves. State governments failed to respond. One of the most horrible things about this was that those who were charged with enforcing the law were actually in the Klan, and they were the one uh, largely among the people inflicting the violence. The federal army was uh, insufficient to withstand the challenge. And just to make it quick and finish up, the first lesson is that violence works, but the second lesson is that against all odds, the federal government actually did suppress Klan activity in 1871 to 72. They successfully did that. They, they wrote something called the KKK Act, which allowed them to, um, the federal government and federal courts and federal judges to try people accused of uh, racial violence and membership in the Klan as hate crimes. So this is the first hate crime legislation in US history and it did exactly the same thing that it did in the 20th century. It took that enforcement away from the states which were refusing to do it and put it in the hands of the federal government. It takes a lot to line up the pieces and I can explain why that was possible and they very successfully did it. So there was a whole series of Klan trials, uh, very strategic because there were so many perpetrators. They went after what they called the big puppies 
uh, and in the end, uh, so the D Department of Justice in the United States was created at exactly this moment, um, and they dispatched federal attorneys to try these cases. There were 3,000 indictments, hundreds of defendants pleaded guilty in return for suspended sentences. They convicted some ringleaders, about 600 people, with long uh, sentences in the federal penitentiary, and then mass numbers of people came in to confess and plead. So that's how they handled the enormity of the task. Um, in 1871 to 72, in other words, the federal government succeeded in destroying the Klan. A year later, that violence would come in a resurgence. It would never be as organized again in this period under the Klan because the Klan itself was now a federal target. So just to finish, if the first lesson is that uh, violence works, the second lesson is that uh, uh, what is about what can be done when the political will is there, and then we can have a conversation about what, that, what, what it takes to meet the challenge of racial violence and violent attacks on democratically elected governments. Um, this, uh, as I think you can now understand, is one of the lasting elements of trauma, collective trauma in the United States for African Americans, and in fact, my thinking about all of this is changing during this week, and um, part of it has to do with this is a case for African Americans in the United States where there is no central event. There's, there's, it's so long, the, the trauma is so long. There's slavery, then there's the Klan, then there's segregation and lynching, then there's Jim Crow and, and right up to the present. So there is, no, there is no target, there's no single crime or historic crime to focus it around and therefore no focus for, for reparative justice. And that is the conversation that has been shut down in Trump's America. That was starting. It is ongoing. But I think it's important in this case to, to, to know the historical background. Uh, I think for those, as I said at the beginning, just to, just to conclude, um, uh, the current moment frighteningly recapitulates the, some of the elements of this, and it is understood to do so. People, not just scholars, but other people talk about it. Uh, as a new clan or a new, uh, a new moment. And it has, for historians, it has targeted, it has made people uh, even more pessimistic. They, they look back at Reconstruction and they don't see the promise, they don't see what was tried, they don't see the possibility, they see only the defeat. Friends, good morning. Um, I'm going to just go straight into the subject, having done all my thank yous and acknowledgements yesterday. I won't repeat them. I'm talking about basically the state democracy and violence, talking about India. And uh, I'm just beginning with this slide, which I think is a very telling one. Do I need to say anything on it? Or can I just keep it there for a minute? Do I need to, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. No, it's on the other computer. Oh, oh, thank you. Who said that? Thank you. <laughs> yeah, it's there now. Thank you. Um, one of our Hindu right-wing, you know, activists with a trishul in his hand. Anything that we don't understand is anti-national. And as you can see, democracy, secularism, everything is crossed out. And there's our Prime Minister Modi looking very proudly on, kind of suggest the relationship between the state and uh, the, you know, the activists and violence, I thought, in quite a nutshell. 
Um, okay. Yeah, I'm going to have to coordinate this. Sorry. Yes. Um, so today I'm looking at the nature of violence and the crisis of the democratic framework at three moments in time. Um, context is India. The first is the communal violence at the time of partition, which I'm contrasting very briefly with the Holocaust violence. Uh, the second is the organized violence, again at the time of partition. Here we're talking about the communal organizations which were out to subvert democracy and the newly independent Indian state, culminating in the very important moment which Nebosha had flagged yesterday, the assassination of Gandhi. And the third moment is 2019, and what I'm calling the mainstreaming of political violence, in a sense how political violence is kind of embedded in the democratic system today rather than being outside as a kind of challenge. And again, just for the sake of simplicity and for people to understand this, again, I'm pegging it on the recent inversion and the reading of the assassination of Gandhi to keep a focal point. So in the first part, I'm looking at the violence that was witnessed in Yeah, I've done that. So just click on the, it, it's in your head. Actually what's happening is, I don't no, know. that's not, your, your PowerPoint is over here, so just use the clicker. Ah, okay. So this I've done. Right. So in the first, I'm proposing that violence that was witnessed in India during the partition in 1947 it needs to be explored through a framework other than that of the Holocaust. This was something that I had talked about yesterday also in the context of the oral histories of independence and partition, and one that recognizes communal violence as popular in the sense of civil populations participating on a massive scale rather than the strong role of the state. Uh, in the second part, I focus on the involvement of political organizations, specifically the communal political organizations, including the private armies or the volunteer bodies, uh, which were absolutely rampant at that time, in the immediate post-independent state, which was seeking to subvert the democratic processes through the use of organized violence. And in the last part, I examine the legitimation of violence in mainstream politics today. Now, in the first part, we find that in many of the writings on partition, the perspective of the Holocaust is borrowed, almost lock, stock, and barrel, and applied to understand partition violence. Like we have the concepts of the Liu, the memoir, borrowing on Nora, similarly Ellie Wiesel's uh, Bearing Witness, and other writings on uh, the Holocaust also get uh, applied in a very simplistic way. Um, however, the anthropologist Veena Das has reminded us that the model of trauma and witnessing that has been bequeathed to us from Holocaust studies cannot be simply transported to other contexts in which violence is embedded into different patterns of social sociality. Now, I think this is an important message which needs to be heeded. 
As I was thinking about these issues of memory and memory work many years ago, I visited the Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington, D.C., which is, of course, an amazing museum, but that was the first time it struck me in a very strong way the how different the Holocaust and the violence of the Holocaust were from the Indian partition. And it set me wondering, is, our, is the framework of the Holocaust, however huge that is, an apposite model for theorizing or for understanding the Indian partition? And in the case of the Holocaust, a very simple difference was from India was that it was easy to distinguish the perpetrators. They were there with a capital P, the Nazis and even the rest of society, which was perhaps complicit in it. Whereas in the case of the partition of India, the distinction between villains and victims was completely blurred. In a particular region, a, one community had the majority of perpetrators. In another region, those same perpetrators could be victims. I'm talking here. Um, at this point, though the book had come out much earlier, I read Mahmoud Mamdani's work, When Victims Become Killers, Colonialism, sorry, I'm doing this again, Colonialism, um, Nativism, and the Genocide in Rwanda. And this is what struck me when I read this. There's a long quotation here uh, from him, which I'm not going to read out, but um, you know, the text is there for you. Uh, in the readings that I've shared, but I thought there were two or three things which were very crucial to my discussion today on the role of the state. And one was where, what he points out, where he says the Rwandan genocide was a very intimate affair, and how it's not an extermination on a huge scale, but how when you kill with a machete, it's very different from when you kill with, as he calls, the drop of crystals. So it's the gruesome detail of a street murder rather than the bureaucratic efficiency of a mass extermination. The other point, uh, yeah, the second point that he makes out is that the government did not kill in Rwanda. It prepared the population, enraged it and enticed it, but ultimately and this was the chilling part and the different part, your neighbors killed you. And interestingly, he himself in the end talks about the Rwandan genocide and the Indian partition. He draws our attention uh, to it and he says that invites com comparison with Hindu-Muslim violence at the time of the partition. And the last sentence is important for our discussion today. He says, neither can be explained as simply a state project. Yeah, I think that's important. So what am I doing? I'm suggesting that perhaps the concept of popular genocide may help us understand the Indian partition better than the perspective emanating from Holocaust studies. A very important difference between the Holocaust and the Indian partition was that the Holocaust had an end. There was an identifiable moment when it ended in a certain concrete sense. Whereas in the Indian case, the partition continues to live on. And 
all of us who are familiar with the Indian situation know this, the continuing communal divide between Hindus and Muslims, what Urmi spoke about, how it flares up ever too often in instances of widespread violence, whether it's 1984, 1992, 2002. So also I think this, what Costa had said, can there be a moment when you say, well, it's over, we don't talk about it anymore, we don't have that luxury because it's ongoing. Now, uh, this is the second part of my talk. Here I'm talking about specifically the subversion of normal democratic processes by organized violence in the immediate aftermath of the independence and partition of India. Now, as we know, in 1946-47, the political parties such as the Muslim League and the Hindu Mahasabha, those who are representing Hindu and Muslim communal groups, they move beyond negotiations and constitutional politics to subversion of normal democratic processes by organized violence. And here I'm talking about the private armies or what are called the volunteer bodies, the Muslim National Guards on the side of the Muslim League, the RSS, and there were even certain Akali groups on the part of, this, of the Sikh political parties who pushed for, in the case of the Muslim League, they pushed for a separate homeland for Muslims, namely Pakistan. And in the case of the Hindu communal parties and organizations like the RSS and the Hindu Mahasabha, the assassination of the national leadership, whom they saw as the main obstacles in their objective to subvert the nature of the Indian state. What is subversion of the nature of the Indian state? I'll come to in a minute. The huge increase in the number and membership of the volunteer bodies attests to the spread of communal ideology during the 1940s. And that's very important because for me, violence is not just violence. Violence is just the tip of the iceberg. It's the communal ideology which has been spread, which is what is the really dangerous thing and which is where the continuity lies, even when there's no violence. The whipping up of communal frenzy and this is important, the British indifference to the carnage. After independence and partition, the Hindu Mahasabha and the RSS, these are the Hindu right, they step up the pressure to declare India as a Hindu Rashtra, a Hindu state with Hinduism as the state religion. The argument goes that now that Pakistan is a theocratic state with Islam, as a religion, then why don't we do the same thing in India? The worrying part is that they found a ready social base in the embittered refugees who had come in from Pakistan, I mean particularly the Hindu and the Sikh refugees, who in turn found the expression of their embitterment in this politics of hate and revenge which was targeted at the Muslims. So there was a very easy fit which happened. So the targets were the national leaders who were upholding, and rightly so, the rights of Muslims and other minority groups to be equal citizens in the newly minted state. There was a link very clearly then between those who were demanding a Hindu Raj, a Hindu state that is, and those 
who were conspiring to murder Gandhi and Panditji. Panditji is the reference to Jawaharlal Nehru as he was popularly called. So it's important to see what I'm underlining is the politics behind the assassination. It's not one madman as the RSS has tried and Mahasabha have tried to portray it all these years who just went berserk when he saw Gandhi doing, you know, just being anti-Hindu as they called it. Um, now, uh, yeah. so cries of death to Gandhi rang out. Murdabad, that means death, was the cry. Cries soon translated into action. Gandhi being shot at close range in a public meeting. The assassin was a member of the Hindu Mahasabha and the RSS, and the mastermind of the conspiracy, and this is important, was the foremost leader of the Hindu Mahasabha, B.D. Savarkar, who you can see in this picture with the black cap. This is a picture of Gandhi's bullet-riddled body. Now, the Prime Minister, that's Jawaharlal Nehru, and the Home Minister, that's Sardar Patel, two very important figures at that time, they were aware of the threat posed by these organized Hindu and Sikh communal groups, which were, as Nehru had said, out to overthrow the state, or at least to subvert its character. Alarmingly, within the administration too, there, were, there was infiltration by communal elements. Many examples of this, but reportedly there was a branch of the RSS in the Indian Civil Service, as I am told by my student, Saib Bilawal. The newly independent state, the, the government, was aware of the danger posed by these elements, but they were in this predicament. They had just come to power after a long struggle in which civil liberties were something they had fought for. And they were very wary of immediately on assuming office to now ban organizations. And this was a kind of classic dilemma, but it was very tragic that the ban on the organizations came but too late. That is, Gandhi was dead by then. 25,000 activists of the RSS and Hindu Mahasabha were arrested. It's a big figure, but it also shows you how many more there were out there. Thank you. In 1948, there had been a silver lining. One silver lining, as I said earlier, was the role of the state. It's standing steadfast, but there was another silver lining, which is what that the vast majority of people who had supported this politics, at that moment, they recoiled from it. They were shocked that this politics could go as far as killing Gandhi, because Gandhi still remained the sort of, you know, in the popular imagination, the most important leader. So for 20 years after Gandhi's assassination, in fact, it could be said that in his death, as in his life, he brought about communal harmony. Because for the first 20 years, we had hardly any communal violence, no riots, etc. because there was this shock, that realization that this is what this kind of politics can do. So there was a kind of recoil. However, in 2019, that is today in contrast, there is justification publicly as I'll just show you, of Gandhi's murder, of the politics of hate, 
and legitimization of political violence, all the while paying lip service to democracy in the form of its lowest denominator, electoral politics. So we're being told all the time that, well, Modi has come to power, you know, you have to concede it to him, 300 plus votes, that's his majority. But it's just electoral politics, and we know the pitfalls of it in a country like India with EVMs being rigged, the money power in elections, what have you. So what is important to note, and this is my main last point, is that this violence is not outside the political system in the sense that, say, Naxalite violence is, which can be seen as a kind of threat to the state from outside, but this is embedded in the very democratic system itself. Now, what happens? In keeping with all this, the national past gets reconstructed in line with communal ideology. So Godse, who's the assassin of Gandhi, Savarkar, who's the mastermind in the conspiracy, they are today paraded as national heroes, whereas Gandhi is now portrayed as a traitor. The word used is Desh Drohi. So in this communal rewriting of our past, Gandhiji's assassination or murder becomes painted as the slaying of a demon, you know, like Ravana is uh, slayed. So the word is Asurvad, the demon who is slain, rather than martyrdom, which the language, the word for it is Shahadat as it has been seen all these years. It was a martyrdom, but today there's this very clever movement to seeing it in an obverse, inverse way. The, this is a photograph uh, of a very recent, on 30 January, which is Gandhi's martyrdom day. Um, the woman here holding a pistol, this is supposedly a recreation of his assassination. And it would uh, interest you to know, you can see the picture of Gandhi with somebody is holding a loft and she's got the pistol. And as you can see from the clothes she's wearing, the saffron and etc. and I'll come to that in a minute, that she is a national secretary, believe it or not, of the Hindu Mahasabha. And she's shooting an effigy of Gandhi, recreating the caption says, the assassination. So it's a very provocative thing. And it's all staged, and it's all over social media. And interestingly, it's obviously done on the day of his martyrdom, on 30th January, when the rest of the country is observing, say, two-minute silence or going to his samadhi. Later, she shoots the effigy, and there's a blood bag that is tucked behind, making it seem like the effigy is bleeding. You know, if you, some of you remember Bollywood or uh, Hollywood films, uh, old style, where you had tomato sauce, you know, oozing out of the heart. Well, it's that kind of very, you know, creation. Um, and the group behind her can be heard chanting, Mahatma, again, note the inversion. Godse has become the Mahatma, not Gandhi. Mahatma means the great soul, right? So he's Mahatma Godse is immortal. The incident is in Uttar Pradesh a small, in a small city called Aligarh. And later on, the group garlanded an effigy of Godse and distributed sweets to commemorate, as they called it, the assassination. Many people like us and others wondered if this anti-national tag was only for particular groups like us from JNU. Why did nobody call this group anti-national? Why was there no media trial, no case of sedition? against them, they just went, you know, stock free. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm just finishing. Uh, the last few slides, I just, I'm just running through them. I'm not going to comment on them. I don't have the time. I just ran through social media and found that there was so much uh, defense of Godse. Here is Godse, his assassin, shown as a Hindu lion. That's the caption. There's, and saying that again, that he shouldn't be seen as a terrorist. Uh, this is a clip from, uh, which I'm not showing, of course, but just running down. Um, the, a film called Gandhi Murder, which is on the anvil and which is portrayed as um, a movie which claims to be based on true events. And most interestingly, and I'm ending with that, that Godse's speech at the trial, you know, he was tried and then uh, hanged in 49, uh, that speech has become viral on social media. The, the speech is not available, uh, there, there was no recording of it, but there are many people who are sort of, who've recited it as it were, and it's there, and you can see many of these uh, on, uh, you know, as I said, on this thing. And the book, it's also published in book form. Um, and every page of the book, the number, has a pistol motive on it. It's very, it's, you know, you have, you have pavement editions, and it's a bit like, I don't know, it's many people who come uh, to India always ask us, why is Hitler's main camp uh, so popular in India? I don't know. But that's also sold on uh, on as, as pavement additions. Just one second, that's the last. So I'm not reading this out, the Godse's defense at his trial, there's no time for it. But basically what he said was that um, he was, he, why he wanted to bring Gandhi to an end, his existence to an end, because of what he saw as Gandhi emasculating the Hindu community. Right. And this is the last slide. Um, can I go back to this one? Yeah, I have promised not to read it. Um, so I'll, I'll, just, I'll just leave it there. Um, this is uh, about just right now. Um, while we, you know, two months ago, uh, Saad, there was a BJP candidate, Sadvi Pragya, who was, she's a sadhvi, that means she's a religious, like a, um, what is it, a saint, as it were, and she's accused of an act of terror, she was convicted, she's out on bail, and she was nominated as the BJP candidate uh, from Bhopal in Madhya Pradesh, and what's very interesting is that she made this very provocative speech where she said, Godse, is a deshbhakt, he's a patriot, you know, the inversion that I'm talking about. But interestingly, the prime minister did not say anything about it, and now you won't believe this, but she's now in parliament after a huge electoral victory. So usually we speak of violence as mounting a challenge to democracy, we see it from the outside. But the whole point is that now we have violence or political violence embedded in the political system. And I'm just wondering whether this suggests a new normal. I'm really sorry about the time.
I'm going to talk about the rise in recent years of the far right in Germany through the example of the, uh, of the party Alternative for Deutschland or the AFD, um, Alternative for Germany. And I'll be looking at how this party has been claiming different narratives of cultural trauma. One that aggressively challenges Germany's official collective memory of the Holocaust and one that preys on fears of cultural dilution and foreignization. In both of these narratives, Germans are victims. The discourse of Germans as victims isn't new at all. It actually goes back to the immediate post-war period, and it's a sort of a continual um, uh, narrative of cultural trauma. Um, but it was particularly striking uh, in German literature and cultural politics after 1990, reaching a high point in academic debate through the late 1990s up to the mid-2000s. Um, I have often wondered, now of course I'm, I now know the answer to this, you know, did this discourse ebb away somewhat in the intervening years, you know, so between say 2005 and now? After the 1990s and the so-called end of history, memory studies enjoyed paradigmatic status as an international interdisciplinary direction and this, of course, was really rather pronounced in the German context, where the fall of the wall, the end of the GDR, and unification brought to the surface many different stories, not just the articulation of the individual experience of Jewish victims of the Holocaust, for which the international literary phenomenon of the 90s and 2000s, W.G. Siebold, is so well known, but also the many victim experiences that Germans also went through such as the Allied area bombing campaigns, which devastated several German cities and killed you know, hundreds of thousands of civilians, the stories of the circa 12 million ethnic German expellees pushed out of their homes towards the end of the war in the Eastern Territories with the advance of the Red Army, the stories of the German women who were raped by the Red Army soldiers, and more recently, and in a slightly different context, of course, the stories of East Germans, for whom unification also represented a huge loss of Heimat, home, identity, and stability. Now, with all of these challenges, Germany developed a very articulate and advanced um, culture of memory contests throughout these two decades. And these I would describe as, um, you know, they're part of the work of the social process of cultural trauma public debates carried out between opposing cultural or political figures, and one of them, uh, Arlene mentioned the other day, Gunther Grass, you know, he was a public intellectual and literary phenomenon of the post-war period. Um, or indeed controversies around the public forms which commemoration of the crimes of National Socialism and the Holocaust should take on a national scale. So I did some work in this area during that time, well, really through, you know, from around 2000 up to 2015-ish. Um, I used trauma theory, Holocaust um, historiography, and aspects of comparative genocide. And if I'm honest, I, I got a bit bored, okay? So, but um, I, I don't think that this was just the complacency of normalization, and actually, I've been really reflecting on normalization as Jeffrey Alexander uses it. And I'm concluding that it's quite a dangerous state for memory to arrive in. Um, you know, normalization uh, began to be talked about really through the 90s and into the early noughties in terms of German uh, kind of memory debates, um, but almost as if it was an achievement. 
you know, look, we're, we're kind of normalizing, we're accepting what happened, we're owning up, we're taking on responsibility and so on. But I actually think it's a cue also for complacency, potentially, and switching off. Yeah. So now I have to explain why I got a little bit bored. Um, many, many of, I'm a literary scholar, and many of the memoir texts from that period just did not convince me um, aesthetically and in terms of literary quality. Many of them seem to say the same thing, and I'm quoting Bruce, and I think, Sushita, you said it uh, the other day. Uh, it sort of used to boil down to, or many texts I can think of boil down to, remembering is forgetting. Right, And of course, uh, the way Bruce and yourself have uh, spoken about that in terms of uh, talking to real people and so on, it's much more nuanced and I think a lot more productive. So um, I, I wasn't sure what the future of memory studies would be, and in any case, it seemed to be becoming somewhat superseded by transnational or migration studies as a leading paradigm of arts and humanities study for the new millennium, although, of course, memory studies and transnational or transcultural studies are by no means mutually exclusive, and um, this uh, concept of multidirectional memory is a very good example of that. But since 2016, at least, it is clear that, um, you know, my sentiments were wrong, I think, you know. Um, established collective memory is under threat even in Germany. Um, uh, as as far-right elements within the AFD, but not just the AFD, attempt to rewrite national memory as the cornerstone of a new German sensibility. The study of the politics of memory, alongside the checking of the factual historical record, have become um, charged with a sense of urgency, I would say, um, and not just in terms of re-establishing or reasserting what the past was and is, but nowadays also in terms of defending the values of open democratic societies. So just a little bit of background detail on the uh, AFD. Since the federal elections in uh, September 2017, they entered the German Bundestag for the first time with a vote share of 12.6%, which makes them the biggest, um, third biggest party in the Bundestag and the biggest opposition to the CDU, CSU and SPD um, uh, uh, coalition, go coalition government. Um, so they have 94 seats, and their success comes at, I think, a time of instability for Western liberal democracies generally. They're also part of a kind of, you know, they, they, they take advice from Steve Bannon and so on. So they're part of this sort of pan movement. Um, they began as a Eurosceptic party, and I think it's really quite astonishing to think back that it was only 2013 when they were founded. And um, they, they were a Eurosceptic party with liberal economic policies and a conservative social agenda. Uh, they didn't pass the 5% um, threshold in the federal elections that year. They had greater success in the European elections of 2014, and they've built on that again just in the recent European elections this year. But um, on foot of their success in 2014, they were able to convert the so-called refugee crisis of 2015 into political capital for themselves by whipping up social divisions, resentments, and anti-immigrant sentiments across Germany. So since their inception in 2013, they've uh, moved really very far to the right where, where, from where they started out. 
um, first under a woman called Frauke Petri, who resigned last year and is now trying to re-establish a different kind of conservatism, although she is still far right, um, from the political wilderness. Um, and more recently, under the joint leadership of Alice Weidel um, and Alexander Gauland. And Alexander Gauland used to be um, a member of the CDU. But to the right, even of these, I would submit racist figures, is a Thuringia, Thuringen, or Thuringia-based uh, grouping within the AFD, um, Der Flügel, it's called, led by Bernd Hücke, on whom more later. Um, before her ousting, uh, Petri and resignation. Frauke Petri, uh, who herself is no stranger to far-right tendencies, had been behind a move to, to try and expel him from the party. But this is a power tussle. Um, uh, and it didn't work. Uh, it's also part of the reason why she left. And just to um, kind of... Uh, uh, give you an idea of where it's at. Hucke has been under observation by the Verfassungsschutz, which translates as the Federal Office for the Protection of the Constitution and the Fight Against Terrorism. So it's sort of like, I would roughly compare it to, although of course it's very different, but sort of compare it to um, the FBI, right? So, um, and, uh, but it, because it's the protection of the Constitution, because the German Constitution uh, is essentially was built on an anti-fascist and anti-Nazi sort of um, agenda. Um, and since January, so Hooker has been under observation for quite some time, but since January, the entire party has been under um, observation. The um, party blames the established political parties for this state of affairs. Um, uh, they, they espouse contempt for these parties. They call them the Altparteien. Um, uh, that's the CDU, CSU, these parties of the centre and the Social Democrats. And the AfD styles uh, itself against these allegedly decrepit and incompetent um, parties as the new, dynamic, vital, authentic, committed ultranationalist patriots. Um, they're necessary, they're noble, they're a solo resistance to the already occurring decline and surely imminent decay, and this is the kind of language they use, of Germany at the hands of the elites who over several decades have actively driven the country and its future into the ground, prioritising other ethnic groups and cultures over their own people whom they have betrayed. For the AfD, the stakes could not be higher. It's Germany's future and the future of its people, biologically and culturally, more so than economically, I should emphasise, in the face of foreignization that's at stake here. Leading party members repeatedly espoused the replacement theory, whereby the white Christian West, if it continues along its current path, um, will be taken over and eclipsed by the Muslim or Chinese other. Despite this type of rhetoric, the federal chairperson of the party, Jörg Meuthen, as well as Alexander Gauland, claim that it is fundamentally a conservative bourgeois party, and they vehemently deny that it has veered more and more towards the far right. I'm very interested by how these guys, um, and of course their female counterparts, represent in the media. Um, and I'm becoming quite interested in the language and bodily gestures and facial expressions of what I would just call brazenness. It's just brazen. Um, so I think it will be quite interesting to perhaps theorise around that a little bit. I don't know where one would start, but 
it's just so widespread um, and I think it's quite interesting and it needs to be unpicked. So they veered, no matter what their leading figures say, they have veered very far to the right and the fact is that they're now represented in the regional parliaments of all 16 federal states and in every one of those states a, a total of at least 100 party functionaries, members and activists have connections to far-right organisations from the German identitarian movement to the anti-Islam protest movement Pegida to the Burschenschaften or right-wing student fraternities and the Reichsbürger. So these are all just these groupings. That's not even all of them. There are even more uh, underground illegal uh, groups. So members of these groups nowadays have access to Parliament via the gateway to a space of public resonance and relevance that the AFD offers them. And this is the real step change to observe. The far right must no longer remain relatively invisible and relatively inaudible, and therefore, on the surface of it, at least largely irrelevant. Via the AFD, it now has a legitimate foothold in the system. And um, to kind of uh, pick up on um, what this means or where it's going, um, uh, you will probably have heard of the murder of the um, mayor of Castle on the 2nd of June, a CDU politician who was pro-immigration um, by a convicted far-right-wing person who's been underground and very quiet for at least 10 years, but who was able to kill him at point-blank range in his tiny little village um, in his home. Um, and, and so uh, there is a connection. Um, there is a connection. I don't know what the line would be between what the AFD says in the public space and what these groups are doing. This guy was aided and abetted. Um, there's also uh, a worrying um, uh, context in that um, the state uh, is not doing its job. Despite this kind of surveillance of the Farfassenschutz, there's a problem with uh, right-wing sympathisers amongst the police in the state of Hessen and elsewhere in Germany. Um, and. Uh, I can't go into it now, but the National Socialist Underground is another interesting uh, phenomenon where the state is not doing its job and where the, where the actual federal office for um, the, the protection of the Constitution has not been doing its job, where there's state sympathisers for, 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 for these kinds of um, political positions. So it's not just that the AFD has expanded the parameters of political and public discourse in recent years, breaking these long-held taboos with a number of disturbing statements. So, for example, Frauke Petri uh, resurrected na Nazi terminology very, very deliberately using the word Völkisch, which translates as folk or of the folk or ethnic. It's a Nazi word. Um, and it's not, it's not just that also uh, the grandchild of a high-ranking Nazi is a deputy leader of the party. So that's Beatrix von Storch. Uh, whose grandfather served as Hitler's finance minister from 1932 to 1945. Von Storch herself is very controversial. In 2016, she suggested using firearms at the borders, at the European borders, to keep refugees at bay. And recently, she was on German television going on about Dexit, right? So Deutschland, uh, Exit, Dexit. Um, and again, this brazenness is uh, this sort of implacable uh, brazenness is, is something that I'm interested in. It's equally concerning how the AFD is this 
very public and now politically legitimate central node of a right-wing network of groups and organizations that has spread across Germany and connects to other, yeah, thanks, to, to other um, like-minded organizations beyond its borders. Um, and so uh, of, the, of the 94 actual Bundestag delegates, um, a majority of them themselves have connections to these right-wing organizations. So I'm just going to have a little look at how the AFDE builds its raison d'etre around the idea of Germany as a victim of history um, after 1945. So central to this is official German memory politics as they've been shaped since 1945 and then again after 1989 and the question of whose cultural trauma. So part of German identity since 1945 has been established around a particular memory of the Holocaust, one which demands as much internationally as nationally, ongoing acknowledgement of German guilt and responsibility for the crimes of National Socialism and the Holocaust. In this memory narrative, Germans are a perpetrator, perpetrator collective that vows never again. The ethical obligation to remember the victims of the Holocaust is inseparable from this self-understanding as a perpetrator collective, and it also works against the flourishing of an aggressive nationalism in the contemporary or at least it seemed, to, it seemed to in the past. The narrative of cultural trauma here firmly belongs to Jewish and other victims of National Socialism. Ideally, there can be no questioning of challenging this foundation, but of course it does happen, as the phenomenon of Holocaust denial shows. It's important to note that German guilt and responsibility on one hand, and Jewish and other victimization on the other, are two sides that make up this particular memory discourse. If you interfere with one, you will be distorting the other. But the AAPDE is developing the ability to really interfere with this. They feel shortchanged by the historical record and its consequences, which culminate in German guilt and responsibility. And some of their members, in particular this chap, Björn Höcke, who is incidentally the grandson of expelled ethnic German, uh, of ethnic German expellees. So, um, and he's also the chair, he's the chairman of the AFDE in Turin. Um, so, um, he is trying to alter this national memory frame, and with that potentially also future understandings of the historical record, so as to create this ultra-nationalist, proud German identity um, in the present, one that resentfully throws off the responsibility to commemorate the crimes of the past, mobilizes anti-other, in particular, in particular anti-Islam rhetoric. They are anti-Muslim, they want to write uh, Islam out of protection in the constitution under freedom of religious expression. Why? Because they define Islam as a political movement and not as a religion. Right. Um, and they encourage violence, verbal or other, against others, the media and the established political class. According to Hooker in his now um, notorious Dresden speech to the youth wing of the party in January 2017, Germans are the victims of a PC memory culture and this must stop the survival of the, na of the nation depends upon it. Uh, so he goes on to crit critique this um, death ritual of, of German memory. And I'm just going to cut, cut short here because I'm running out of time. Um, and I'll just talk a little bit about what, what's um, on, the, on the slide here. So um, there was obviously a big media reaction to this. You know, everybody was outraged by um, Hooker. He, he asks for a 180-degree um, pivot 
in terms of journal memory. Um, you know, uh, how can anybody grow up feeling positive um, in Germany um, when, when, when we have this monument to our disgrace? He is quoting um, uh, an eminent German author in this. Um, I won't go into it, but it's a discussion that went on in 1998. This monument to disgrace in the centre of Berlin, and of course it's the memorial to the murdered Jews of Europe there um, uh, on, on well, my right. Um, so uh, a, an interesting sort of protest movement against this, and I'm wondering how, it, how to think about it in terms of a reaction to this brazenness, right? And this website is well worth looking at. So um, uh, the, this uh, action kind of an artist collective led by a fellow called Philip Bruch, um, uh, essentially um, in secret uh, acquired through donations a property next door to Björn Höcke's home in Bornhagen, which is in Thüringen, and that's Björn Höcke's home there on the hill. And in secret, over 10 months, they built a small replica of the Holocaust Memorial um, right in a position where Björn Höcke would have no choice but to look at it every single day. Um, so, and they had him under surveillance. What's very interesting, I don't have all of the imagery here, what's very, very interesting is that is the performative aspect. You know, uh, Sushita, you were talking about tomato ketchup and so on. So they're there, they, they kind of style themselves as sleuths surveilling him with binoculars and, you know, sort of Columbo, you know, um, Mac and so on, and a hat. Um, uh, Philip Ruch found out um, earlier this year that he is now under surveillance for the last 16 months by, um, by the uh, federal government in Thüringen, in which, of course, Hooker sits, um, and um, he's being accused of uh, sort of infringement in somebody's uh, private sphere, yeah? Um, and that's quite interesting. Of course, he's saying it's art, you know, of course, it's art. Um, uh, I don't know if it's art. I'm wondering how do we distinguish between art and actionismus. Uh, it's a sort of a stunt. They've pulled off very many of these stunts in, across different areas. Um, but I just thought that this is an interesting... Um, it, it's brazen. It itself is brazen, but it's considered, and it calls out Björn Hooker, who looks like a, a bit of an idiot. Um, uh, so... To. Yeah, sure. Um, that's what they say. So they say a monument against the creeping normalization of fascism in Germany, the Center for Political Beauty, that's what they call themselves, secured prime real estate in the fight against modern right wing extremism, the plot of land right next door to Björn Hooker, the leader of the AfD in Thüringen, uh, and so on. Björn Hooker, someone who does something like this is a terrorist. The Center for Political Beauty is not an art collective, it's a terrorist organization. 